Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When we think of bonding with our dads over sports, some recall being taught how to fill out an MLB scorecard, others how to throw a spiral, and for some, how to hit a nine iron. But for Tom Janode, it happened over breakfast with a pencil, a newspaper, the daily gambling lines, and a simple question of who you like. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN senior writer Tom Janode as we talk about how a parlay and a teaser are the definition of family time. Now we present The Family Vice by Tom Janode. The Family Vice. It wasn't a secret. It was illegal and it ruined him. But we could talk about it. It was, in fact, about the only thing in his life that wasn't a secret. And for that, I'll always be grateful to the great God of gambling, which, despite its hunger and its bloody fangs, gave us point spreads and football Sundays together. Everybody thought Lou Janad was a gangster. He not only looked the part with his pinky ring and French cuffs and blue dress shirts white at the collar, he played it, cultivating an air of danger. He had beautiful manners and always strove to be a gentleman, the striving itself a part of his charm. But there was something feral about him behind the civility, the elaborate coded masculinity, and even more elaborate actorly diction. He chased down men when they cut him off in traffic and got into fistfights well into his 70s, his anger in a clip you couldn't help but look at, even though you knew it would strike you blind. He had an underworld glamour, even to his own children, and a reputation. People figured he had connections, and he did. His connections called our house like old friends. But they weren't friends. They were bookies, and they had him by the balls. He placed his first bet on the first Super Bowl, Chiefs-Packers 1967. That was also the first football game I ever watched because my Uncle George was married to Vince Lombardi's sister. Who the hell knows why you fall in love? But I can tell you that several love stories began that day. Between America and the NFL, between my father and gambling, between me and football, and between me and my father. I was eight years old at the time, alone in the house because my brother and sister had just gone off to college. I was afraid of him until football. He scared me off into tears, and football gave me a way of talking to him without crying. And it gave him a way of talking to me, well, without making me cry. I dedicated myself to football in an effort to reconcile myself to him and to reconcile him to the rest of my family. That he lost tens of thousands of dollars in the process didn't really matter as much to me as my role in trying to help him win. I knew it was against the law. I also understood that the bookies who called our house were committing crimes. Did that make them criminals? Did that make my father a criminal? Who was the crime against? It couldn't have been against the NFL because the NFL was in on it. That's what my father said. Every Monday morning, the newspaper published the latest line, and it kept publishing it throughout the week. How bad could any of it be if the line was in the paper, like stocks and bonds? The underworld was supposed to stand for everything that was wrong with America. The NFL was supposed to stand for everything that was right. 
but they met on Sundays after church or, in my father's case, instead of church. They met in our house when the phone started ringing. Hell, they met on television when Jimmy the Greek told viewers the teams he liked before games. Dad, who's Jimmy the Greek? He's a tout. Dad, what's a tout? A tout's a guy who hangs around the racetrack and sells tips. Does he know anything? He doesn't know anything more than you and me. And that was the thing. Nobody knew, not even Jimmy the Greek. Everything was out in the open, but everybody was kept in the dark. Was betting on games quasi-legal or quasi-illegal? Did the NFL exist to give people an excuse to bet? Or did betting exist to give people an excuse to watch the NFL? It was never even clear who ran the whole operation. People thought my father was a gangster. I thought NFL Commissioner Pete Rosell was the gangster because he wore the same kind of shirts my father did and sported the same varnished tan. But who was behind Rosell? Who set the line? Who was the gangster behind the gangster? I was my father's tout. For 10 years, from the time I first watched Uncle Vince coach the Packers to the time I graduated high school, that was my employment with a work week that started when the paper boy dropped the daily news in our mailbox on Monday mornings. We lived on Long Island, and everybody else on our block subscribed to the Long Island Press or Newsday. But my father liked the sports section in the news, which meant that he liked the attention it gave to the needs of gamblers. I would come to the kitchen table for breakfast, and he would hand me a stub of a pencil and open the paper before me to the latest line. The racetrack listings would already be marked up, subject to my father's blocky exegesis. But the little box of agate type with its strange cuneiform flourishes, home team in caps, was all mine, and I would stare at it like a scholar until my father asked, Who do you like? It should have been an easy question. After all, my father called me a walking encyclopedia when it came to football, because all I did was study my Street and Smith's annuals, my Pro Football Weekly, and the cheaply printed tip sheets he bought at dear price because they guaranteed winners. There was nothing I didn't know, at least statistically, about most players and teams. But it was not an easy question, given all that hinged on the answer. Who did I like? He wasn't asking about my allegiances, except perhaps my allegiances to him. He was betting $1,000 a week and asking me to beat a point spread whose shifts mocked my certainties and careful preparations. More than that, he was making a connection through his connections. Dad, I like the Raiders against the Jets. Minus nine. It's ten and a half. But the paper says nine. So bet the paper, he'd say. And we'd laugh. The calls came to my parents' bedroom. There was a yellow phone on the nightstand with a little toggle switch that gave it two numbers. When the switch was horizontal, the phone belonged to us. Calls came in and went out on our number, the one listed in the phone book. When the switch was vertical, the phone belonged to my father, a conduit to his secret world, with a number I don't know to this day. It was his business phone, he said. And there were two kinds of calls announced by its distinctive chirping ring. The first were from his buyers, most of whom were women, and these he answered with the door closed, 
speaking in low, soothing tones, indecipherable to me or my mother. The second were from bookies, mysterious in their own way, but carried out with the door open. My father sold handbags and made a lot of money doing so. But the bookies sold opportunity, and they were relentless. They called all week long, and on Saturdays and Sundays they called all day long, proffering exotic parlays and teasers. My father spoke to them in code. When he told the bookies, $20 on the dolphins, he was betting 200 When he said $100, he was betting 1000 And when, on Super Bowl Sundays, he placed a bet, Sato Voce, for $1,000, well, he was risking something unimaginable. My mother, Fran, listened as intently as I did from the kitchen and sometimes from the flocked hallway right outside the bedroom door. She fretted, wringing her hands the way she did when she sat as a passenger in the car, and my father, often in anger, started speeding. Oh, I hate those parlays, she'd say. I hate those teasers. But ultimately, she had no choice but to include herself in my father's life as a player, having been excluded from his other life as, well, a player. My father was a man of many vices and an untold number of secrets, but his gambling was the one secret in which we could all participate. It was the family vice. I watched every Super Bowl from 1 to 14 with my parents. We saw many games now considered historic and witnessed the transformation of Super Bowl Sunday into a national civic holiday. But what I remember, what I can't forget, was the losing. The impossible victory that Broadway Joe guaranteed for the Jets in Super Bowl III? My father had the Colts, minus 18. The AFL's last stand as an independent entity in Super Bowl IV, in which Hank Stram's Chiefs portended the NFL's glorious future? My father took the Vikings and laid 17. He bet the Dolphins when they lost to the Cowboys and the Redskins when they lost to the Dolphins, enamored with George Allen's over-the-hill gang. He could never win a game that involved the Cowboys, whether he bet with them or against them. He liked the Steelers, but he bet against them when they played the Rams in Super Bowl fourteen because Vince Ferragamo looked like a movie star. My father was, in fact, an inept gambler, but he never blamed me for his losses, at least not out loud, and I never rooted for any team but the teams on which he'd put money. So we learned to lose together. Which is not to say that we lost alone. My parents threw an annual Super Bowl party, to which they invited friends who had never placed a bet. It was intended as a celebration, but it was a strange ritual because the triumphalism on the television screen was matched only by the desperation my father displayed from the coin toss to the last tick of the game clock. Our guests didn't know how much he was betting, but they saw his expertly tanned skin go sallow when things didn't go his way, and things tended not to go his way from the outset. Lose the toss, lose the game, lose the toss, lose the game, he'd repeat, waving his hands in disgust and fetching himself a drink. They also saw my mother trying to placate the gods of chance by hexing players with what she called giving them the horns. With her pinky and forefinger extended, she'd put the horns on place kickers especially, and when they missed, she'd cackle in triumph. See, see, I put the horns on them or more precisely, since she'd lived all her life in Brooklyn or on Long Island. 
the horns. His friends loved and sometimes feared my father, but when they came to our Super Bowl parties, they occasionally exchanged glances that suggested they feared for him and for my mother. And yet what they could not have known is that in the end, gambling is what kept my parents together. It wasn't simply that they both loved it and went to the track and later to Atlantic City as often as they could. It was that gambling provided them the only place where they complemented each other and their passions, such as they were, existed in perfect balance. My father bet long shots, my mother favorites. My father played poker and blackjack, my mother the slot machines. My father believed that he was cursed, and my mother believed that she had the power to curse him. And when my father, perhaps during one of those ill-fated Super Bowls, responded to a disastrous pass interference call by putting his fist through the door to our den, she refused to have it fixed. The hole stayed in the door for years, a mysterious mandala, until the day they finally had to move out of the house. The first bookie I ever met ran a candy store in Belmore, Long Island. He was a cigar stub of a man, Jack Ruby without the 38 special. He exuded crookedness, but not danger, the kind of leg breaker who signed the cast. And my father used to visit him and drink coffee at the counter. They would kibitz and let me look at Playboy. He once got my brother a job as a bouncer. The second bookie was much more professional, which is not necessarily a desirable quality in bookies. Charlie was trim and dapper, wore suits, and his tanned face shone as if he went to the barbershop for his shaves. He exuded danger, but not crookedness. He was courteous and solicitous and generous, setting me up with tickets for concerts and football games and sending a check for my wedding. He worked for what my father called the syndicate, perhaps out of concern that the mafia would scare me and my mother. My father went to him because other bookies couldn't handle the sums he had begun to wager. Charlie was also the last bookie my father ever had because every so often they had differences not of opinion, but a fact, because every so often he would tell my father that he hadn't bet a game my father thought he'd won, or that he'd lost a game he thought he hadn't bet. They argued, and Charlie would win. Charlie always won. What was my father going to do? Show him the notes he made at the breakfast table with his stubby pencil? My father had to pay him no matter what. No matter what. A requirement made clear when he visited my father's office, and my brother asked, what happens if someone doesn't pay? Charlie's answer was unsmiling and definitive. He wouldn't want to do that, he said, and my father never did. But I believe that for the first time he had to borrow money to pay his gambling debts, and that for the first time he got scared. Two years after my wedding, my parents sold their house on Long Island and moved down to Florida. The house was the only asset they had left and my father had to live the rest of his life on the proceeds of the sale, including investments. He didn't find a new bookie in his new home. He didn't go looking because he didn't, as he explained to me, have the money. And then he stopped watching football altogether, because as it turned out, he wasn't really a football fan at all. He was just a fan of betting. Last May, the Supreme Court ruled that the federal law prohibiting sports betting was unconstitutional and thereby left the question of betting's legality to the states. It is both an eventuality and an inevitability 
that sports betting will be part of this country's armament of legal entertainments, first state by state and then nationwide, once Congress does what the NFL has asked it to do and establishes a regulatory framework that protects the integrity of our game and ensures both the league and its players a piece of the action. Football was always a game made for gambling. Now gambling will be made for the game, and that will count as both a rebirth and an ending. There has long been an arrangement between the NFL and gambling interest, whereby the sports book guaranteed the league a captive following, and the league offered in return its most valuable intangible asset, legitimacy. But that arrangement has been dissolved by no less August and authority than the Supreme Court, and the league will one day earn a portion of its revenue from an activity it has tried to keep at arm's length. What becomes, then, of its legitimacy? What becomes of the quasi-legal and the quasi-illegal interests once the quasi is gone? Who will turn out to be the gangster behind the gangsters? What, in the end, is the difference between placing a legal bet and an illegal one? And will something irreplaceable be lost when any upstanding citizen with a few bucks and a smartphone can bet a football game? And the promise of the connection gives away to the reality of the transaction. I wish my father were alive to answer that last question, but he died 12 years ago, flat broke. He never bet another football game after moving down to Florida. He played the stock market instead, an industry in which the touts and the bookmakers are fused into a corporate entity. He did not invest. He gambled on long shots or as he called them, hit stocks, with the same degree of acumen he brought to football. By making nothing but legal bets for the last 20 years of his life, he probably avoided having his legs broken. But he lost precisely what he was out to win, which was everything, or everything but my mother, who stayed with him to the bitter end. His desperation is what survived him. When I cleaned out his apartment after he was gone, there was a paper trail of stocks of which I'd never heard, and spilling out of the drawers of the dresser in his bedroom, a thick mulch of lottery tickets, like the end of a ticker tape parade. What is the difference between legal and illegal gambling? For losers, there is very little. They both provide avenues to ruin sufficiently wide and well-traveled. The difference is in the winning or in what people like my father expected to win when placing a bet. It wasn't just money, because an illegal bet wasn't just a financial transaction. It was a cultural event, a vote for vice. It was a choice about where and how to live in relation to the law, moral and otherwise. My father wanted to live outside it, though within the borders of family. He gambled because he liked, as he always told me, a little action, a little interest, and because life lacked savor without a little larceny. He wanted to get away with something, and until he ran out of cash, he did. He made people think he was a gangster, when really he was just a mark. Even at the end, when he was reduced to trying to beat the lottery, he remained optimistic about the transformational power of a wager. Wait till I win, he said. Then I'll show you how to live. 
But he didn't have to win in order to do that. He just had to put the paper in front of me with the latest line, hand me what was left of a pencil, and ask me who I liked. Joining me now is ESPN senior writer Tom Janot. Tom, thank you so much again for making the time with us. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, as I, with my own biases and cultural influences, when I, the entire time I read this fantastic story about you and your dad, I felt like I had sort of part of the Goodfellas soundtrack playing in my head as it kind of went along. And since, but, this narrative you have of what your life was like with your dad in these, in sports and gambling, since that was like sort of the only, like what your normal was, like did you, did did it feel normal to you, or did you know at an early age that like maybe this isn't quite whatever right and what everyone else is doing? Um, I definitely uh, was a kid who knew from an early age um, that my father was different than other fathers. Um, and that my mother tried to be like other mothers, but you know didn't didn't quite succeed. They were they were they were a very uh, different kind of couple, and they were different kind of people. And I was really really um, aware of that from the beginning. So the gambling was really sort of part of that sense of difference. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up on a split level on Long Island. But, you know, my father installed this set of marble steps. He replaced the old stone stoop with these, like, elaborate marble steps, white marble. And he would sun himself on those steps, you know, all year long and all through the winter with <laughs> reflector. And he bought the marble steps so that it would reflect the sun. Uh-huh. So, I mean, once once you start with that, <laughs> you know, the sense of difference is pretty is pretty well established. So um, the gambling was really just part of it. Now, you talk about your dad, and he wasn't like a connected, like he wasn't like in, like a, 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 a gangster as the term someone would use, but it wasn't something he seemed to do much to stop people from thinking as you talked about some of the clothes that he would choose to wear. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was definitely... Um, you know, he was kind of a, a, a good fella um, in style, but mm-hmm. not um, in fact. Um, he, you know, wore, um, you know, he uh, did not wear a wedding ring. He wore a, a pinky and a black onyx and gold pinky ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, he always wore, um, you know, shirts with French cuffs and cufflinks. He wore, you know, the two-tone, the, the two-tone shirts that you saw in... Um, uh, Goodfellas, yeah. and he just kind of cultivated a sense of, of danger about him that I, I think, in a lot of ways, was was real. He was a he was a pretty tough customer, and you definitely did not want to cross him or mess with him. But there was definitely another level of guy who you really didn't want to cross or mess with, and they happened to be my father's bookies. Right, but yeah. So to your point, like. Like there was, there was like a a certain line where into that world where he didn't cross, but then again, like agree to disagree was not always part of his conflict resolution. Yeah, it was definitely it was definitely not. I mean, my you know my father, um, you know those, you know one time a, a neighbor, uh, you know a neighbor, 
uh, came up those white marble steps and complained about the noise uh, that was being made when my father came home from a, uh, a road trip. And this mm-hmm. was the guy who lived next door. My father said, you know, you, you get off my steps right now or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw you off. And he was, you know, he, was, he definitely would have literally done that. <laughs> I see, I, you know, I saw him do it. So, so one, of the, one of the things that was kind of, sort of slipped into this story that made me pause, I said, wait, what? And then it just kept going was like Uncle Vince, Uncle Vince Lombardi? Yeah, yeah. Uh, when, you know, my, my wife still, still teases me about it. When I first met her, you know, I said, well, you know, my, my, my uncle is, is Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers. She's like, what? And I was like, well, you know, my uncle George, who was my, my mother's brother was married to Clara Lombardi, Vince Lombardi's sister. And, you know, in my, in my family ethos that made Vince my uncle. Sure. And so uh, and so we we always you know uh, always being teased uh, by my presumption by, by my wife who you know whenever I mention Uncle Vince but um, you know it's one of our it's one of our battles to me he's Uncle Vince I never met him in my life um, <laughs> but uh, to 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 my wife uh, it's you know one of one of the strange things that I hang on to. So with this bond with gambling with your dad. Um was it something you kind of leaned in on because, as you said, like there were many other moments where you where it ended in tears, like any other yeah. interact. So you kind of leaned in on this because, wait a minute, this is resulting in more acceptance and less tears. Yeah, I was uh, I was afraid of my dad. Um, there was there was no doubt about him. I was you know not the only one who was afraid of my dad, but you know when. I was little. He was, uh, you know, just a really a fearsome kind of character. And um, I was always just trying to figure out, you know, how to have a, how to have a connection with him because, you know, um, I was, my brother and my sister um, are 10 years older than me and they left the house to go to college when I was eight. Mm-hmm. And I was left alone with this guy that I was afraid of. And it was like, how do I connect with them? And then around that time, the first Super Bowl came on, and my father bet a football game for the first time in his life and immediately became enamored of the practice while being incredibly bad at the practice. (laughs) So uh, I went in and and, uh, tried to fill that gap. And uh, became, you know, I, I was, you know, became like a total autodidact of of um, football and football statistics. So yeah, that's that's my next question was going to be how. So that's how it became so important for you. Like, how much of a priority to become like on a weekly basis? Like, I've got to know this Street and Smiths and Pro Football Weekly, like because this, the more I know, the more my value goes up with my father. I was like your classic suburban sports scholar, you know. I was, uh, I was the, you know, I was the kid who knew everything or thought he knew everything, you know, statistics. Um, you know, one lost, you know, the, the quarterbacks' college careers, you know, the whole, the whole thing. I, I just mm-hmm. was uh, that was that was my thing. That was uh, it was uh, the most um, important. Um, part of my intellectual life for really quite a long time. Uh, I, I was a huge comic book reader. 
I put away my comic books and started uh, educating myself about football. And that lasted for a really, really long time. Um, and it, in fact, it lasted until I went to college and started, you know, reading books. So the, in part of it, though, the, it's it's interesting, though, there seems to be a little hypocrisy in our society where, you know, now there's now gambling is sort of coming more into the mainstream. I, I live in New Jersey and gambling, like sports gambling, you want to come sports gambling, like come to my house and Right. You know, use well, use exactly. the IP addresses in my neighborhood, and you can you can do whatever you want. But in the but then for years and years, it's there's still gambling as a vice. But then part of your story is talking about the value of when they put the lines in the paper, and you know you talk about Jimmy the Greek. They didn't get rid of that guy because he was talking about gambling. They got rid of him because he said some you know very racially insensitive things. So it's just right. it just seems that where it, it's looked upon as some sort of a vice at the same time it's also embraced and that just seems to me that as a kid growing up like and you're so how impressionable you are that seems like it would be a tough thing to sort of balance in your head as you're being sort of as you said at a young age knowing like this is not necessarily the right thing or normal but at the same time all the opportunity and information is being thrust upon us yeah i mean it was in my family i mean it was like stocks and bonds. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I looked at the, you know, my father on Monday morning would hand me the newspaper and show me the line and, and have me start making my picks. And that was a, that was a thing that was just, it wasn't, um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't hidden. It was all out in the open and yet it was illegal. And, you know, and every once in a while the NFL would do something that would sort of communicate that it was illegal. Like, you know, when it's suspended, when Uncle Vince had to suspend uh, his favorite player, Paul Horning, um, over, you know, his gambling and his associations. And when Pete Rozelle had to suspend or uh, threaten to suspend Joe Namath because he uh, owned a bar, Bachelors 3, that had, you know, underworld associations, you know, they would, the NFL would occasionally come down on that kind of thing. But there was, it was uh, just, um, I mean, it was an open, it was an open secret that what was driving the NFL's immense popularity was not just its claims on um, all American mom and apple pie, mm-hmm. but also its claims on the hearts of, of, you know, people who were losing their shirts. So, with that, with, with the uh, you making your picks, as a kid who grew up afraid of your dad, in not just that information with like the Street and Smiths and Pro Football Weekly, how powerful and empowering was it for you to have him slide that paper across with the pencil and say, you know, who you like? Uh, it was huge. It was. Uh, it wasn't just um, powerful because um, I was helping him out mm-hmm. it was powerful because you know i was like a bookish kid mm-hmm. and this was like a validation of like my way of being it was like where we connected you know mm-hmm. i mean my, you know my father was this incredibly flamboyant charismatic guy and i was a nerd and <laughs> yet it was it was you know in this particular place where 
you know, those things connected. And, you know, I have to say that, you know, it was not so different from my mom's relationship with him. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my, my father and my mother, you know, did not have a particularly good marriage. It was incredibly, you know, volatile and, you know, in, in most ways, you know, unhappy. And yet it lasted for 59 years. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that drew them together was gambling. I mean, you know, I'm like the family cook right now for like my wife and my daughter. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at it. And I got good at it because, you know, when I was a kid, you know, my parents would go night after night after night to the track and leave me uh, a steak and spaghetti to make. So that's <laughs> how I learned to cook. You know, so gambling, gambling was a big deal in the house on every single possible level. It does seem like uh, the portrait I sort of got from your mom, from your piece, it seemed like she was like, like the mom from Silver Linings Playbook, where you know, sort of keeping the seesaw and even keel as possible for the rest of the house. Yeah. Was that sort of yeah. how it was? It was. It 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 definitely was. I mean, she was she was all in when it came to you know rooting for my father's you know various gambling interests. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, at the same time, she. You know, there was, um, I mean, one of like the great like symbols of my childhood, you know, that there were doors in the house where my father put his fist through um, in anger, you know, at losing bets. Mm-hmm. And she would she would never have them fixed. We had, you know, we had uh, the, the, the door down uh, between the kitchen and the den and the door to my father's bathroom. Mm-hmm. you know, had holes in them that were the size of my dad's fist because she wanted to, at some level, to remind him of just how insane the whole thing was, I guess. So it was more like, I need you to see this every day to realize how dumb that was and not like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what, I mean, we, the, opposite, yeah, the opposite being, I'm not going to even acknowledge it happened because I don't right. want to rock the boat. Right, yeah. She was definitely not the kind of person like to cover up. I mean, mm-hmm. she was, she was there, you know, trying to put curses and hexes on place kickers when, <laughs> when they, when they, you know, would line up for an extra point or something. But at the, at the same time, I mean, it, that was, I think that, you know, probably uh, him putting his, his, his fist through the door was probably a, you know, like a line that he crossed that she wanted to remind him of. How much did Sunday dictate how the rest of the week was in your house. Like, were there great weeks and, or were they, were there like no great weeks? That's a really good question because, you know, I mean, I I look back, you know, when I look back on it, I always think of my dad in terms of losing. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, um, was spectacularly, um, maladroit at gambling and inept, particularly inept at picking stocks and talked about it, you know, talked about it continually, talked about, like, his bad luck and, you know, himself as, um, you know, kind of a, a cursed gambler. I mean, all the time to anybody that he met. And while at, at the same time being this guy who was this, you know, insane narcissist and egomaniac and, you know, a charismatic people that people assumed was either a gangster or a movie star. So there was mm-hmm. always like those both sides of my dad. But I, I mean, he had to have won uh, occasionally. 
um, because you know people people don't do things where they lose continually. So right. I, I mean, I, I I look. It's a great question. I look back on it in turn in one way, but I mean, there had to be there had to be good times um, where he won, and I, I might as well add now that. You know, my father relied on me for uh, to pick games for him, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I wasn't I wasn't much better. <laughs> Were there any repercussions that, when you didn't my, pick the right my one? Dad, my dad was. You know, I mean, it, the thing about my father is that um, you know he he never he never blamed me, hmm. and you know I wasn't particularly you know, great at it while being, you know, knowledgeable about statistics, because in fact, it's really hard to, to bet football games against the line. As, as everybody knows, it's, it's funny now because like when people say, well, you know, who do you, who do you like in this game? Like, you know, who do you think is going to win? I, I never care who's going to win. I always just care who's going to beat the spread. That's the only <laughs> thing that ever matters to me. But it's, it's like the point I always make to, you know, people get on a plane to Vegas and everyone there knows that little sit they all have their system why they're going to go home a winner but then if you walk into the Bellagio there's a reason why there's like several Picassos up on the wall <laughs> yeah exactly well and then of course you know i mean that the other the other thing that was going on it wasn't just picking games i mean it wasn't i mean you had to in order to um to win as a gambler i mean you had to not just beat the spread you had to beat the spread often enough to beat the vig you know mm-hmm. the the vigorish, which is like a one of the one of those crazy words that I learned as a as a young boy. I was like way le- way younger than you probably should have learned it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I learned about the vig, which is the you know the ten percent that the bookies take on everything. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it was a, it was a strange and uh, in many ways um, wonderful education, but you know, one that I probably shouldn't have had. Because it does, I mean, it does, part of your, it seems like there was like that one paragraph in your story where it seems like the biggest upsets in the NFL in the 70s were like a who's who of moments that really sucked at your house. Yeah, all the time. I mean, all of, all of the, the, the big moments of, um, of the NFL through the 19th, uh, through the late 60s, all through the 70s and early 80s. I mean, just spectacular games. I mean, the, the, you know, like the Dwight Clark reception. Um, you know, leading to, to, to Joe Montana, you know, going to the mm-hmm. Super Bowl. I was talking about it to my brother yesterday. My father's like, who's this Montana? He's a nobody. Kenny Anderson's <laughs> the guy that you got to go with. <laughs> and and so, that's, so that's how I remember, you know, great NFL careers and great NFL games is that they always ran counter to my dad's hopes and expectations. But I, I have to say that the the, the biggest – you know, my most uh, indelible memory of my father's uh, gambling and his bad luck was not a um, a pro game. It was a college game. It was when um, Notre Dame went like ahead of USC on a big game. I think it was 1974 or thereabouts, and it was um, – the game where Notre Dame like had like a thirty-five to nothing lead at half, mm-hmm. and you know my father's like, "Hey, hey, hey, buddy, boy, we're we're in now," and he went off to the track with with my mom, 
mm-hmm. you know, that with, with the bet, you know, in hand. And I stayed home and watched the game and watched, you know, Anthony Davis had, you know, the game of his life. He returned the first, he returned the opening kickoff of the second half for a touchdown. And then just the floodgates opened and, <laughs> I forget I forget what you know um, what score USC won by, but they won kind of going away. Mm-hmm. And you know, my dad came home from the track and was like, "Hey, hey, hey, buddy! You know what do we got?" And I told him the score, and just uh, you know, his face was you know was one of the the more memorable um, images of my childhood. The scene that you sort of started to paint at the those family Super Bowl parties. I mean that. That little, those scenes right there seem like an Academy Award winning short waiting to happen. But was that like a jubilant time or was it like, was there a lot of tension or was there a mix of everything? Yeah, there was a mix of everything because it was, uh, it was, my, you know, my parents' friends would come over and they were, you know, extremely nice people and close friends. But in, you know, in most cases, they were in my father's mind squares. You know, which meant that they, you know, didn't go to the track, didn't bet, didn't go to, you know, nightclubs in New York at night. They were, you know, straight, you know, suburban people. And mm-hmm. then they had this this guy there who was, you know, betting, um, you know, many, many thousands of dollars on the on the game. And we'd have like three TVs set up. We'd had we had a, a TV installed in the wall, which at the time was just completely state of the art. Mm-hmm. And then we'd have like two portable TVs going. And it was like this huge party that was going on. But, you know, but, but the outcome of the party sort of rested on the outcome of the game. Were there any, um, any, your mom tried to hex the kickers, but like, did your dad have, did it go beyond like your stats? Like, were there superstitions like lucky hat? No, you can't move because they just scored. You have to sit there because last time you did, they scored. No, no, the, he he wasn't he wasn't that kind of guy that I that I can remember. He didn't have those kind of um, lucky things because he was so unlucky. You know, <laughs> he didn't. It was it was all it was all um, you know sort of manifestations of his of his you know sort of bad luck would would start right from the very beginning. I mean, you know, I mean, from the, from the coin toss, he would go, you know, if they, if his team lost the toss, lose the toss, lose the game, lose the toss, lose the game. And then he'd go and he'd go and. So it's like this 15 minutes on the clock, first quarter, you've already lost. Oh yeah. 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 You know, from, from the, like, you know, like if the, you know, the other team scored on the opening drive, Jesus Christ. Then he'd like, you know, disappear for a while and come <laughs> back. And, you know, it was just, uh, it was madness all the time. So, but also, but then as everything, as time went on and your family moved to Florida, it, once the, the gambling aspect was gone, like it seemed like your dad just didn't have a taste to even watch the game at all. There was no reason to watch it. Yeah, he he um, gambled um, to add, um, you know, what he would say, uh, like a little spice or a little a little interest to the game uh, to make the game more interesting. I mean, that was always like even when even when I played pool with my father, he would try to bet me 
Let's make mm-hmm. it. Let's make it interesting. Was the <laughs> was the line? I mean, my father was definitely the kind of guy who, you know, if there were two cockroaches going across the floor, he would, you know, try to. By the time they reached the wall, he would try to, you know, drop five bucks on which one was <laughs> going to get there first. He was that. He was that person, you know. Yeah. And um, and so, but I always thought that he was a uh, a huge football fan. Uh, in fact, he was just a, a fan of a, a fan of gambling, and uh, the spice that he got from gambling, the interest that he got from gambling, was really um, his what turned out to be his only interest in in football. He, um, you know, when he was living in Florida and was not gambling, and he got out of gambling because he you know, pretty much lost all his money. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had uh, he would just sit there, and I would say, "Dad, there's a game on." Ah. Boring, boring without it. You know, it was a little bit like you know, at, you know, Ray Liotta mm-hmm. at the end of you know, Good Goodfellas when he's you know living in the suburbs and he's uh, I think he calls himself just another schnook. Yeah, I think that that's what that that's how my father felt when when he wasn't gambling that he was just another schnook. But as as you evolved as a person, became an adult, and you know, did you sort of get the and you learn more about people and you realize that what your family was doing growing up was just sort of doing it out loud, like in the neighborhood open and this is what we're doing. I'm making these phone calls during a Super Bowl party and, you know, I've got the Marvel steps. I mean, I always tell, I always, um, I always tell uh, my wife when she worries about like the state of our house, I always say everybody's house that we go to looks fantastic because they invited us and they know we're coming. Like everyone has their secrets behind their closed doors. So when, uh, as you've, Evolved, did you, like, how long did it take you to feel like that everyone had their secrets and this is sort of just, we just lived ours out loud? Well, that's a really interesting question because, I mean, I'm writing a book right now about my family's secrets. Mm -hmm. And to a degree, well, okay, so first of all, when you're a journalist, you realize pretty quickly that everybody has their secrets because that's where, you know, that's where your stories come from. So that's been, yes. you know, my my profession um, probably has a lot to do with my growing up in a house where there were secrets and I knew early on that there were secrets. But in a lot of ways, I didn't know how extensive that sort of network of secrecy was, how important mm-hmm. secrets were to most families. Right. Until I started, until I started um, investigating for real uh, the secrets of my family, because it's an interesting thing. You know, I mean, a lot of people in my family, when I tell them that I'm writing a book about my dad, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, like my brother would mm-hmm. be like, what do you want to do that? What, what do you want to do that for? Because who's going to be interested in dad? But when I tell that to other people, they immediately start telling me their own secrets and right. about their own fathers and about their own families. It is something that people have in common more than anyone would, would ever think. And is you know really actually a signature part of their lives. Um, part of the response that I've gotten to this story um, has been from people and people I don't know 
um, DMing me on Facebook and Twitter and telling mm-hmm. me that their childhood um, was very much the same as my my childhood, and I've spoken for them, and they're they're you know really happy to have that particular story told. It is an amazing story, and I thank you for sharing some of those secrets with us. Well, um, I really, really appreciate the opportunity to do this, both in print and uh, in talking to you. Well, Tom, thanks again for your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Mike. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories podcasts.